And good morning. Good morning. Good. People are awake, relatively. Great. Uh, we're going to get the kids involved again today. So are they all sitting nice, nice and carefully here, almost like waiting in, in anticipation? They've now all left. They'll be back. Um, so final, final week in our Daniel series. Um, so kind of final week of the visions as well. We've been doing a kind of three-week almost mini-series within a series um, where we've been looking at these sometimes puzzling visions that come in the last six chapters of Daniel. And uh, this week we're looking at, looking at chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to read out the whole two chapters, um, or we wouldn't be able to do a 20-minute sermon, but I'm going to end up focusing on a few specific things. Um, and we're going to get kids acting out stuff as well as some adults acting out stuff, because I know that deep down inside we all want to be like that. Um, so today I've called the sermon, The God Who Is In Control of History. And so the question really to us at the beginning is, does our understanding of God account for the fact that he is in absolute and utter control of the whole of history? Or does our understanding of God make him in control of little parts of our life, but not actually sovereign over the whole of history and the whole of what's going on around the world? And I think in a I suppose in a, in a time of history where we have more access to what's going on around the world, I think understanding that God is in an absolute and utter control of history is more important than probably any other time in history, because a few hundred years ago, you would, li- you would only be aware of what was going on just down, down the street, whereas now we have immediate access to stuff that's going on halfway around the world. And a lot of it is very puzzling, a lot of it is very confusing, and a lot of it is very discouraging if you don't believe in a God who controls history. And today I want to show you from a passage in Daniel 11 that God does control history, and not just that he controls history, but it's good news that he is in control of history. So that's where we're going. So if you want to open up your Bibles in Daniel 11, um, this is the point where I will need a, a few volunteers. So I've, I've handpicked a few just to kind of make things a bit easier. So if Aween and Zana, if you guys could come up. So these guys, will be, these, these, these guys are going to be some main actors involved here. So you, can, yeah, you, can, you guys can stand here for the moment. Um, and I will also need a group of people. It can be a mixture of, um, mixture of adults and children to be God's people. So maybe three or four people who want to up for that. You guys... Look like you're up for it. And maybe, does any adults want to be involved? I will pick on people otherwise. So if you, okay, Andy Cattuli, you, you come up. <laughs> and uh, anyone want to be involved in these guys' armies at all? Alex, you look like you're desperate to be involved in Aween's army. And uh, who else? Mide. Actually, we haven't got, haven't got any ladies involved either, so I might have to... I could be really cruel and ask my wife, but she'd never forgive me. <laughs> um, Lena is involved, and Rachel Coz. There we go. Great. Okay. So, we're, like I said, we're not going to read out the whole of Daniel 11 because it's a long chapter. Um, actually, into, as far as visions go, it's not quite as confusing language as when we looked a few weeks ago at Daniel 7. But there's a heck of a lot of stuff that goes on. So what I, what I want us to see in this vision is we're going to have a bit of fun. But I want us to see that actually God's, this is being prophesied in the 6th century BC. The bit we're going to focus on happens almost to the letter in the 2nd century BC. So you've got 400 years in advance. Daniel is seeing something that's going to happen. And it's almost, like, almost kind of to the letter exactly what happens 400 years after. And I want us to just be aware of the detail that God is aware of the future in. And just seeing it happen is often very impressive. So... God's people, you guys are going to be... So who, who was involved in God's people? It was you two and Mr. Cthulhu. So if you guys could be here, this is 
if we're going for any kind of geography, you guys are all in the Mediterranean Sea at the moment. So um, nice on, on the beach, like lounging in the sea. But you guys, um, no, you're, you, are, you are not with God's people at the moment. I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> you guys are main actors, but you don't get to be the good guys. So you guys want to go with Andy over there? Yep, so you guys are relatively happy at the moment. Um, and so you, you're just going to stick there. So we are at the moment in the 6th century BC. And God's people have been set free from exile. They've returned from Babylon, which is where um, Daniel's written. And they kind of just install, get, like, settle back in their land and, and so on. What happens after a while, which is something we see at the beginning of chapter 11, is a great king arises who we look a few, years down the, a few hundred years down the line from where Daniel's prophesying and we realize <gasps> Alexander the Great arrives. So Alexander the Great arrives, conquers the whole known world, like literally everywhere that was known to these people at the time was conquered by Alexander the Great. But when he dies, he was so busy conquering places that he didn't have any time to have kids. So in the end, what happens when he died is his four generals ended up taking over from him, and they split his kingdom into four parts, and two of those generals are Aween and Zanna, and they're the ones that we're particularly interested in for this story, because two of the other generals just went far off in far-flung places that have no particular relevance to Israel at the time. So Aween, you are going to be the king of the south, so if you could go over that way, in Egypt, so basically... Greek Egyptians is what we've got now, and you are going to be the king of the north, so if you can go over that way to a kind of Syria area. Great. So when you're reading the chapter and you read about the king of the north and the king of the south, we're basically talking about the people who took over from Alexander the Great from the northern perspective, so in Syria, and from the southern perspective in Egypt. So that's what it's talking about every time we get that. And basically, these guys generally are a little bit at war with one another, so you can just pretend to throw stuff at each other. For, for a few hundred years, and then we'll join the story in a roundabout. <laughs> no, you don't die. Like, <laughs> the, the empire stays alive. And so they sometimes conquer each other, sometimes don't. And we will join the story in around about 200 BC. So if we could have from verse 20 up. So this is talking about the king of the north. So if you guys could, pr- could like strike, a, strike a dynamic pose and keep it whilst I'm reading. There we go, great. Okay. Then shall arise in his place, so we're talking about the king of the north for the moment, an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken. Let's not worry about him, but basically someone ended up coming over to Israel and tried to rob the temple, but didn't manage. Verse 21, in his place, I'm very sorry, Zanna, you have to be this guy, but you do for the sake of acting. In this place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. What is that talking about? This is talking about now Zanna, the, the king of the north, is called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He basically called himself the revelation and manifestation of God, which if you're like, is not the most humble thing to call yourself. So this king called Antiochus ends up becoming king. He's not actually the rightful heir to the throne, which is why it says that he does it, does it through deceit. But he becomes this king that we end up focusing on for the next few verses because he's going to have a big role to play with God's people. And so he gets strong and he has big armies. Do we have any, any armies? You guys can join your armies. In fact, let's have three people being the armies of the north and you can join, you can join a ween in the south. It will go well for you, don't worry. It will be okay. <laughs> So he gets a big army and everything, and he says, armies shall be utterly swept before him. So he, he ends up conquering. So if you guys can, again, throw, pretend to throw stuff at them, and there's fighting going on. And here, okay, 
Verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest part of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil. So if you guys just keep pretending to conquer, because that's what was going on. Uh, you guys aren't doing too well out of this, by the way, in the south. So you have to kind of pretend like you're being a bit more defeated. Um, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And, okay, here is the important bit. He shall stir up his power and heart against the king of the south. Okay, so you guys need to now start marching towards the king of the south. And the king, and he will, so, um, and the king of the south shall wage war of an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. So even people in the south who were with the king of Egypt end up plotting against him. So things aren't going too well for these guys in the south. Um, even those who eat his food shall break him, and his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall slain. Very good. Okay, you can now kind of be revived a little bit. As for the two kings, so again, although these are representing over history different actual people, it's kind of kings representing the same empires. So let's strike a pose and no fighting for a little bit. Okay. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. So they sometimes try to form alliances. So give yourself like a bit of a handshake. But it's all deceitful. So they're kind of like, they got their fingers crossed behind their back and everything. They're like, I'm going to make an alliance, but I'm not actually going to keep it. So there's lots of deceit going on between these two guys. They shall speak lies at the same table. And the king of the north, so what happens is the king of the north ends up still trying to take over the south, but doesn't quite manage. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. So you've got lots of money. You've done pretty well, but you haven't necessarily conquered everyone. So you're returning to your land. But on the way back, you return via Jerusalem by these guys. And you plunder their temple. You, you grab all of the money from the temple. His heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So you guys go up, back off to your own land now. You guys aren't too happy about this. Because actually, so this king Antiochus comes in. He says, right, that's it. I'm annoyed that I didn't manage to get Egypt yet, so I'm going to plunder your temple and go back off to my country. Not great. Things are about to get worse, unfortunately. At the time appointed, verse 29, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be as it was before. So if you guys start marching towards the south, they really want to take over the south this time. This is it. This is the time. But it will not be as before, for ships of the Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. So what happens is the Romans come in at this point. The Romans come along, and they stand, and and at this point the guys stop fighting, because the Romans are big, strong people. And they basically say to Antiochus, they say, if you attack the south, we will attack you. What do you think about it? Antiochus kind of looks at them and thinks, they're big, they're scary, let's go back to our land. But he's really angry at this point. So you guys can now return, the Romans return, so everything's safe. Guys in the south, you're rejoicing because you've been set free. But these guys are now really angry because they realize they can't compete with Rome, so they can't conquer the south. So they get really angry, and then they come back via Jerusalem again. So if you guys can start walking via Jerusalem, and he shall take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from here shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress. What happens is in 167 BC, these guys return from Egypt and they say, we are angry, we want to beat these guys into submission basically. So what they do is they end up defiling the temple, they sacrifice a pig on the altar, which is not a good thing to do. So you know your Old Testament purity laws, pigs are not clean animals for sacrifices, but they sacrifice a pig on the altar and then... Verse, let's jump to um, the end of verse 21. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And what Antiochus did is he said, I don't like these guys worshipping their God. 
I want them to worship my God. So I'm going to set up a statue to the Greek god Zeus inside the Jerusalem temple. Okay, so you guys build your statue. These, these, these guys here, so God's people, are absolutely distraught at this. But things get worse because Antiochus then starts persecuting God's people. And so he shall, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So you guys are under immense pressure. Some of you are giving in. Some of you are just kind of like, okay, I'll go for the Greek way of life because I, I don't want the pressure. But some of you are standing firm and saying, no, we're going to stand. We're going to worship our God, whatever happens. And some of them end up paying for it with, with their life. So that's kind of where we take us. Now, there is good news that's going to come later, but we won't read towards the bit where they get um, historically delivered because there's a bit more reading to do. But can you see the detail with which Daniel is prophesying stuff that's going to happen? And so if you guys, you, you guys can now return to your seats, I'll just finish off reading the last few verses. But good acting. So this king, this king of the, uh, of the north, so the nasty king Antiochus, who thinks he's a god, ends up profaning the temple and as a result, you can't, you, you can't sacrifice in, the, in an unclean temple. So sacrifices are stopped for a whole three and a half years until eventually God's people manage to fight free from them. But that's not quite the end of all of their troubles if you then know the history of the next few hundred years. But we've got a really, really specific prophecy going on there where Daniel's saying, actually, this is going to happen there and then the king of the north is going to go there. And you read it and you read it alongside historical accounts of what happened and you think... This is almost word for word what actually happened. And what's going on here is we have the God who controls and knows history revealing what's going to happen beforehand so that actually when this happens to God's people and when other things happen to us, we can look at this and say, actually, we have a God who knows exactly what is going on around the world. We have a God who knows exactly what is happening. And we have a God who's in control of everything. So we look at... so. The Jewish people in the second century BC would have looked at that and at the time would have probably been thinking, how on earth are we going to get out of this? But actually they could look at a passage like this in their Old Testament and say, actually we know this is what was prophesied by God, that this would happen, so therefore we can actually stand firm and trust him in the midst of this. And a lot of them did do that. And I think we can look around the world nowadays and see similar, similar-ish kind of things happening, puzzling things. So people who are... various people groups who are being persecuted for their faith, and you're kind of looking at it and thinking, what's going on? You've got even something like, um, which might be a a bit close to home, something like Brexit. For lots of people living in London, it was like the morning when Brexit happened, the world had ended. For a lot of of people who work in the financial world, they thought everything is going to fall apart. And I've heard stories of people who had to go through counselling as a result of what happened because big things are going on and people are suddenly thinking there's no more security anymore if they take if they take the eu away we'll have no security financially what are we going to do and everyone starts panicking and actually we can look at a passage like this and say no things like that happen over history even things like isis actually what's going on there probably the closest parallel we get today really would be isis in terms of systematically persecuting and taking over all, all peoples but also persecuting christians and killing christians along the way actually there's a very strong parallel going on and we can look at stuff like that and is our reaction when we see things like that to suddenly think oh no things are slipping out of God's hand or is our reaction to mourn and to realize that God is still in control of what's going on even though we might not necessarily be able to see the outcome and I think that's how this kind of passage encourages us it encourages us to look at events that have happened and say God knew that was going to happen God knew it was going to happen to the letter 
And therefore, we can be comforted by the fact that God is in absolute and utter control. And that might be something global scale that might be troubling us. It might be something in our own lives that's troubling us. We think, how on earth am I going to deal with this situation? How am I going to get out of this particular financial burden that I'm under at the moment? How am I going to deal with this issue in my family? What's going on here? What's, how, how am I going to solve this problem in my marriage? How am I going to solve this problem with my friends at work? And actually, we can say, if God is able to control global scale history, God is able to control the details of our lives as well and be sovereign over that. And so I think that's kind of, I suppose, the first lesson I want to get from this passage. But you could kind of, I suppose, look at it in a slightly cynical way and think, well, okay, if God, God's in control of history, but why is that good news when this is the kind of thing that ends up happening? Which could be a, a good, we might think it might be a bit of a cynical question, but it's a question that a lot of people would probably ask themselves when they hear that God's in control of history. They'd say, well, if God's in control of history, why does that kind of stuff happen? So why is it actually a comfort that God's in control? And the reason is, is that he's not just controlling it in a random way, in the sense that he's like, look, I'm in control and all of this stuff is under my control somehow. He's controlling it in a way which is going to head somewhere eventually. And so we're going to read the first three or four verses from chapter 12, which kind of comes at the end of this, this slightly longer vision. So it's about 20 verses after um, what we read, the bit we focused on. And there's kind of a little bit of a summary at the beginning. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. So Michael is an archangel. And in Daniel, what happens a lot is archangels represent different peoples. And Michael represents God's people in this book. So it's kind of a way of saying, from heaven's perspective, you are being kind of, I don't know, you're being represented before, um, before the throne. Interestingly, we have a much greater representative for God's people now in the person of Jesus. But that's what that would be talking about. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. So again, he's summarizing. He's saying, you guys, as God's people, are going to go through a really intense time of trouble. And actually, you read Revelation, Revelation 7, and there's an amazing vision of lots of people who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And John, who sees the vision, asks, and he says, who are these people? And he says, they're those who've come out of the great tribulation, the great trouble. And actually what the New Testament teaches us is this life we are going through, although a lot of the time it's, it is great, and although a lot of the time it's fun, is actually a life full of trouble. And we come out of that. And that's where, kind of, that's where our destination is. So there will be a time of trouble such as, such as um, not been since there was a nation um, till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to, to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, which I think is just another way of saying those who sleep in the dust of the earth and rise to everlasting life, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the book and the words, sorry, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So you've got this promise at the end of this long vision where you've got toing and froing, fighting going on, God's people being oppressed. And Daniel gets this vision where he says, actually, there's going to be a time where those who sleep in the dust of the earth, which is a way of saying those who are dead, shall rise. We're not talking about spirits kind of floating off on clouds with harps forever. We're talking about the fact that there's a day coming where resurrection awaits God's people. And that is the hope. That's the climax of the book of Daniel, really, is that one day... God's people, those who have trusted in him, will be raised from the dead physically to everlasting life. And that, that, that's the, that is the ultimate hope that we hold on to. The amazing thing is, 
it's not just that we have that hope, it's that we've got evidence of the fact that this hope has already begun. Because if we could have the um, next passage up, 1 Corinthians 15, so the resurrection was kind of the ultimate hope for Israel at the end of the Old Testament. They kind of like, we are hoping for a time where God will come back, judge the world and raise us from the dead. And Paul, writing 1 Corinthians 15, about a few hundred years after these events take place, he ends up saying, but in fact, Christ, the Messiah, the King of God's people, has been raised from the dead. The first person who has been sleeping in the dust of the earth to rise to everlasting life has been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then that is coming of those who belong to Christ. What Paul's saying here is the resurrection that Daniel prophesied has started already. And the way it works is this. I'd need um, just a. None of the kids, they all look like they're occupied. So if I. Andy, if you could come back up. Andy's a, a potato farmer for the sake of this. So. Andy, at the time, so Andy plants his potato seeds, what if you do for potatoes, and um, at, as the harvest approaches, what happens is he'll end up seeing one potato pop up in his field. And Andy is amazed at this point. He's like, yes, I have a potato. But Andy's not rejoicing because he has one potato, or economically things are not going to go well for him. He's rejoicing because he knows that that potato means that in a few weeks' time, he's going to have a whole bag of potatoes and bags and bags of it because that potato is the first fruits. It's the first produce of the harvest, which guarantees that the rest of it is going to happen. And so Andy can be really happy because he's seen that first potato. It looks like a good one. So he knows that one day, or in a few weeks' time, hopefully, there are going to be many, many potatoes that he's going to be able to sell to lots of people. And so he's happy as a result. Thank you very much, Andy. We... We can have that kind of hope with Jesus. So Paul is saying here, when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just God's way of saying, therefore it's all true. Therefore you get to go to heaven when you die. It's God's way of saying, the resurrection has begun. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Therefore, God will do for everyone who is in Christ what he's already done for Jesus one day. And that is our ultimate hope. That has got to be our ultimate hope. When we look at events that are going on in the world nowadays, when we look at, like I said, ISIS, and maybe for some of us it might be Brexit. We might look at it and think, I have no idea about stability and and so on. Whatever major or minor, perhaps, events that we think, what are we going to do with that? Resurrection has to be our ultimate hope. It has to be the life to come where Christ returns and the dead are raised to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. And actually, if you're here today, and you are not a Christian, then I would want to plead with you and say, would you join Christ's team? Would you join those of us who actually have said, actually, we want to follow Jesus as king. We want to acknowledge that he has died for us and taken our sins and been raised from the dead as evidence of the fact that we're one day going to be raised. And would you join us? Because there is a deciding moment that happens in history where Christ returns. And it's only those who actually have been forgiven by God's grace, who have accepted him and said, actually, I'm going to trust you for my righteousness and not my own efforts. They are the only ones who get raised to everlasting life. And so my appeal today is there, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he is therefore seated as Lord of all things, is in control, and asks all peoples to repent. And my plea to you today is, please, would you, would you give this thought? Would you act on it? Would you not just sit on this message 
of Christ's death and resurrection. And uh, please come and chat with me or with, with someone else after the service if that's something that you want to end up exploring further. But for those of us who do know Jesus, the challenge really is how much does this drive us? And the challenge for me is how much does this drive us? Because I know that when everything's going well, uh, my desire for resurrection in the future is not the top priority of my list. I just end up thinking, well, life's going pretty well. Someday there'll be resurrection. You look at the early church, that's not really the way they thought. They were always on the edge of their seat, waiting for the time when Christ would return. And so the challenge for us is, in good times, do we just end up allowing ourselves to become too comfortable with this current age and actually forgetting that the ultimate aim is when we are raised from the dead one day? And in bad times, is that our hope? Or do we have a slightly wishy-washy understanding of what the future is, where we might use vague terms like heaven, and say, oh, one day we're going to go to heaven, or one day we're going to be with Jesus, without that being a real tangible thing that is part of our life. The New Testament doesn't say, one day we're going to heaven. The New Testament says, one day heaven is coming to earth, and we're going to be raised from the dead, and the whole of creation is going to be restored. Do we have that kind of solid understanding of what our future is, so that when times are bad, when we do have sickness, when we do have horrific worldwide events that are going on, we can say, I know God controls history, and I know my destiny is resurrection, and is not defeat, and is not despair. And so what we're going to do is we're going to respond by, um, initially we're going to take bread and wine together. I think, um, so we're going to take some of the bread which Jesus told us to do, he said, do this in memory of me. Remember, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember that. And he passed around a, a cup of wine. And he said, drink, this is, my, this is the blood of the, sorry, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And every time we eat the bread and drink the wine, the Apostle Paul says, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. So what we're physically doing, there is almost, we're kind of proclaiming through our actions the fact that Jesus has died and then obviously our implication is then rose again. And he says, until he returns. What we do here, as far as we can see from the New Testament, is not something we're going to be doing for all eternity. This is something we do as a way of reminding ourselves and acting out and proclaiming Jesus has died, Jesus has been raised, and Jesus is coming back. Because there's going to be a day where we won't be taking bread and wine every week. Because we will physically be with Jesus. And so we're going to do that together. So um, if we could kind of, I suppose, do that relatively immediately. Um, just so don't necessarily wait for a whole song to, to go by whilst you go. So let's kind of go and grab bread and wine. If the band could come up and just start playing in the background, that'd be great. And then we're going to, uh, should we gather together after that? And we'll gather together and we're going to then, having remembered the Lord's death and proclaimed that until he comes, we're going to gather together again and we're going to look forward to his return when we will be raised from the dead and all things will be renewed and remember the God who controls history. So let's do that together. Let's worship him. Let's take bread and wine and let's remember Christ is returning and he's coming for his people.